You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. Our guest is Dr. David Moffat. David is a New Testament professor at the University of St. Andrews in St. Andrews, Scotland. He's someone that I've gotten to know quite well. I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews, and so David had a huge impact on me, in particular around this topic of atonement. Completely rocked my world during my time there, and uh, in, in good ways. And and so I really wanted to take this opportunity to share his incredible work with you all. So we're going to be discussing his new book, Rethinking the Atonement, New Perspectives on Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension. It's exciting to see this book come out because many people, I think outside of the world of academia, haven't really been familiarized with David's work yet, uh, precisely because his first book, which was an award-winning book that came out, his published dissertation, Atonement and the Logic of the Resurrection in the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's this incredible book, but not always the most accessible to the general public. So I'm excited to see that this book, which brings together a variety of essays and articles that David's published in the past, along with some more recent writing um, on a variety of topics in the New Testament, beyond just Hebrews, but certainly including Hebrews. I'm excited to see all this work come together and be put out more generally to the public, because I think there's a lot of implications here for Christian theology. And so uh, I'm excited for the conversation with David. If you've been a listener of the podcast for any amount of time and you've been enjoying the content, I'd really appreciate it if you would give us a rating on Spotify or even better, give us a review on Apple Podcasts, really whatever's most convenient for you, but just some way of engaging with us so that we know that you're appreciating what we're doing and um, give us comments, give us feedback. We love that kind of stuff. Also, don't forget, we have a YouTube channel. You can search the Center for Bible Study on YouTube, or you could follow the link in the posted beneath the podcast. Uh, we'd love to have your engagement there as well. A lot of excellent content being put out. So check us out. Make sure you're subscribed if you haven't already. And with that, and without further ado, let's go ahead and to jump into our conversation with David Moffat. When I first started thinking about this, it made no sense at all. But what it did is it pushed me to go back to Leviticus. You know, I had read Leviticus before and had even heard some sermons on Leviticus. And I just remember as I was trying to wrap my head around this, this this thought occurred to me that there's way more that happens in Leviticus when you offer a sacrifice than just killing an animal. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting idea because... It seems to me Hebrews was saying there was more to Jesus' sacrifice than just the crucifixion. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. I'm really thrilled today to have on a friend, a colleague of mine, uh, someone who's influenced me quite a bit during my time in St. Andrews. In fact, if you've been a listener of this podcast, you notice I've already had episodes on Hebrews and Leviticus. And <laughs> the man I'm with today is in large part to blame for that. He's had a, a really big impact on my thinking on the topic of atonement in really, I think, great, fruitful ways. And so I'm so excited to have a chance to talk with him and share his work more broadly, because I think it's really important, both for the Academy and for the church more broadly. So thanks, David, for being here. Welcome, Dr. David Moffat. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, I really appreciate the invitation. And it's great to see you again and have a chance to chat with you. Great. 
Would you just give us a rundown of your journey into biblical studies, how Mm. that kind of came about and how you got interested in doing what you're doing? Yeah, sure. How I got into biblical studies. So I grew up in a Christian home and my parents uh, always took church and faith very seriously. I actually dedicated um, this most recent book to them as a way of thanking them for the gift that that they gave me of really just taking scripture and a relationship with Jesus seriously. That's a bit of background to say that all my life, I had always enjoyed talking about theology and talking about how to interpret scripture. And all my life, I remember hearing people say, you know, you should go to seminary. And so I went to my undergraduate, determined that the one place I would never go with seminary. <laughs> I, uh, I I felt like I, what I really wanted to do was to take a very different path, a path that was probably going to be much more lucrative and make lots of money and whatever. And I definitely didn't want to go any place where I was going to have to work on Greek and Hebrew and, you know, who knows what other languages. So my freshman year of my undergraduate My father actually sent me an article to read. It was from a book by Sinclair Ferguson called, and the chapter was Consider Your Calling. And I read this chapter and thought, yeah, a lot of the things that he was talking about were really hitting home in terms of where I thought I had gifts and interests. And and I really couldn't look at my decision at the time any other way than I was just not going to go a certain direction because I didn't think it would be a good way to make money. And that didn't seem to be a very good reason to make a decision for me. I'm not, you know, other people are going to make very different decisions. and But for me, I felt a strong sense after reading that article, a strong sense of conviction that I actually needed to consider seminary. So I actually prayed, okay, God, uh, I'll go to seminary, but you're going to have to help me with Greek and Hebrew. And and I was also pretty sure I wasn't gifted to be a pastor. I didn't see that that's where I would best be able to, to serve. So anyway, I put out a fleece, as it were. My next year, I started taking Greek and I loved it. And that that was sort of the beginning of this path for me personally of bringing together a lot of interests from my background and then, of course, beginning to, to study Greek and tipping into New Testament and really thinking hard about New Testament studies when I went on to seminary with a view, if God allowed, of moving into doctoral studies and teaching at some point. So that, that in a nutshell is, yeah. is how I ended up here. Yeah, I love that story. And I wonder, looking back retrospectively, was it a good decision after all? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I love what I do uh, most days. There are all kinds of things that come along with teaching that nobody necessarily tells you about that don't really have a lot to do with teaching per se. But no, I, I think it was absolutely the right decision. I think this is really where my gifts are. And as long as God allows me to serve in this capacity, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And it's just a delight to be able to work with students people such as yourself at one level, because here at St. Andrews, I'm able to actually work with doctoral students, um, but then also students at a master's level and then even students at an undergraduate level. It's really, it's a great place to be in terms of working with students all the way across, potentially all the way across their their own journey, but um, for many of them just dipping in at various points. So yeah, it, I think cool. it was the right decision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I was asking that partly in jest, just because... Um, yeah. You know, we, when we enter into the journey of academia, 
there's so many things coming to us that we had no idea was on the yes. the horizon. And sometimes I ask myself, like, if I knew all those things were ahead of me, would I have taken that path? And depends on the yeah. day you ask me sometimes what the answer is. Yeah, but, uh, that's but yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think that's just part of the journey of faith, no matter what big decision you're trying to make. If if you knew in advance all the problems, you you might never make it. But yeah, but there are also lots of blessings and um, and benefits that come along with it, too. So. Yeah, that's right. So we're talking today about your your new book, Rethinking Atonement, which brings together, yeah. you know, it brings together a bunch of your essays. In fact, a number of them are essays I've used in class assigned <laughs> to, stu- to students before. So it's kind of cool to see them all together, uh, along with some more recent work that you've done. So it's a really... Yeah. I think it's a really excellent kind of catalog of some of your main arguments, different pieces, kind of bringing them together. Mm. And maybe before we dive into some of the specifics, I'd love for you to just kind of give us the overall view of how did you get into the topic of atonement? And what do you think is so significant about this category? I think a lot of us, we hear this term and we think immediately we jump to like models in theology, like Christus Victor or Substitution, all these kind of things. But your project is... I mean, it intersects with those things, but it's also doing something yeah. different in biblical studies. So, yeah, thanks. That's that's actually a really helpful introduction to to some big potential mis um, that can help avoid some potential misunderstandings of of what I at least think I'm trying to do. Right. So, how do I get into the topic of atonement? I, it's important to say right from the outset that I never imagined that I would be dealing with the topic of atonement. That just wasn't what I was focused on. When I set out to write my doctoral dissertation, I knew I wanted to do something with Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews had always fascinated me as a text. It, it just didn't behave in any of the kinds of ways that pastors or teachers, even seminary professors, have been teaching me about how you can interpret scripture. And Hebrews was just doing something that I, I couldn't wrap my mind around. I couldn't figure it out. So it was a puzzle that was really interesting. And uh, I, when I first really studied Hebrews in a significant way, it was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I did my Master's of Divinity. And uh, I learned there from, you know, very great, competent scholars that Hebrews didn't really care that much about Jesus' resurrection. It was there, it was important, but it wasn't something that the author was focused on. And I just accepted that. It seemed to make sense. Uh, the author hardly talks about it. But as I started thinking about a topic for my dissertation, I began thinking about this issue of resurrection in Hebrews. And it struck me that there was actually several places at kind of key moments in the argument where if you allowed the assumption that Jesus rose from the dead, it offered significant explanatory power for particular parts of Hebrews. Now, you may be wondering, well, what does that have to do with atonement? Well, I didn't see any direct link with atonement initially either. I was just trying to do this work on resurrection in Hebrews and I thought I had found really good arguments for it. And then in conversation with Richard Hayes and sort of thinking about uh, Hebrews a bit more globally, it gradually dawned on me that if the author really did think that Jesus' resurrection as in very Jewish terms, as a bodily event, and as an event that was discreet from his entering into God's presence in heaven, if if that actually was what the author assumed, uh, as I was arguing, then suddenly I ran into a problem with the back end, as it were, of Hebrews. So if, if you think about the argument of Hebrews, especially chapters 7 through 10, 
maybe really 4.14 through 10, you have all this language, especially in chapters 9 and 10, of Jesus entering the heavenly tabernacle, entering a heavenly holy of holies, presenting himself uh, as a great high priest, and presenting himself as a sacrifice before God, or, or offering himself before God. We have issues with this language of sacrifice, which maybe you want to come back to. But the typical way in the modern period of interpreting that language in Hebrews 9 and 10 was to view it largely as a kind of metaphor. Um, and, th and this is to paint with a broad brush. I, I hope that's clear to everyone. That ma many scholars would would nuance this or disagree with this. But in the main, there was a tendency to read Hebrews as reflecting metaphorically on the crucifixion. So when the author talks about Jesus offering himself to the Father in the heavenly tabernacle as a great high priest, this is probably in the main a way in which the author is referring somehow to either Jesus' death as if it were a sacrifice offered by a high priest on the Day of Atonement, or to Jesus' death as the means by which he transitions immediately, spiritually, into the heavenly presence of God. And so the cross has sort of on the historical front-facing side is the death of Jesus. But if you could look and see the spiritual reality of his entrance into heaven, the cross is also the moment where he's a high priest offering himself to God. Well, if you put the bodily resurrection into that account— as something that is independent of the cross, that happens after the crucifixion, and then equally something that is independent of Jesus entering the heavenly tabernacle, that is, it happens before his ascension, his passing through the heavens, as the author says in 4.14. If you put the resurrection in there in that way, then suddenly it becomes extremely difficult in any kind of coherent and consistent way to view the language in Hebrews 9 and 10 of Jesus entering the heavenly tabernacle and offering himself to God, to view that as just a way of talking about the crucifixion. With the resurrection between the cross and that heavenly service, suddenly it looks like Jesus passing through the heavens and then entering the heavenly tabernacle is something that actually occurs logically, conceptually, and temporally after the crucifixion and not something that's just a way of explaining the crucifixion. So that's what put me into the topic of atonement and related to that sacrifice, because the more that I argued for resurrection in Hebrews, and I'm, I'm actually perfectly happy to stand behind those arguments, the more that I could not make the language of Jesus as high priest offering himself to the Father a way of explaining the cross. It looked like it was actually an additional thing that happens after the resurrection and even indeed after the ascension. That's what took me into to atonement. That's awesome. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is when you started thinking about resurrection and putting that into the language of Hebrews, you notice now that you have a process going on rather yes. than a singular kind of one-off event. So we often think of the, have been trained really in church and in theological circles to think of the cross as like this one-off event that does the salvific thing. And now all of a sudden you've got this really rich early Christian, Jewish Christian text where atonement is part of this process, or sorry, resurrection is part of this process. And so now you're thinking about, okay, atonement is this process. And so 
that led you then to looking at what atonement is in yeah. Jewish texts, right? And yeah, what that's absolutely have- right. What it really did is it, it let me like well, first of all, I couldn't wrap my mind around this. I could not understand how Jesus could be offering himself to the Father in the heavenly tabernacle, and that could somehow be a sacrificial act. Uh, that made no sense to me at all, precisely because I believed exactly what you just said, that the cross was really the, the focal point. In fact, you, you could even push it further and say the cross was the sum total of Jesus self-offering as a sacrifice, and that that's where all the work of salvation had to occur, and that the resurrection, insofar as it mattered, was really just a way of God the Father saying, that he vindicated Jesus and had actually accepted his sacrifice. So anything happening after the resurrection and even after the ascension made no sense to me. I've had one one critic of my work say that the account of sacrifice that focuses on Jesus offering himself in the heavenly tabernacle is confused and nonsensical. And I get it. I totally get it. Like when I first started thinking about this, it made no sense at all. But what it did is it pushed me to go back to Leviticus. You know, I had read Leviticus before and had even heard some sermons on Leviticus. And I just remember as I was trying to wrap my head around this, this this thought occurred to me that there's way more that happens in Leviticus when you offer a sacrifice than just killing an animal. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting idea because... It seems to me Hebrews was saying there was more to Jesus' sacrifice than just the crucifixion. So I went back when I had that little thought. I went back and I read Leviticus straight through in one sitting. And I really just focused on these sacrificial parts of Leviticus. And I just asked one question, which was, what does the death of the animal do in a sacrifice? And that was when the penny dropped for me. Obviously, this is interpretation is at the heart of this, right? So I'm not trying to suggest that if you just read Leviticus, it will be self-evident. But but it it struck me that when I looked at places, especially in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, but then also in, in chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement text, when I looked at what was going on there, when you offered an animal as a sacrifice, you did have an act of slaughter. But there were a couple of things that shocked me, frankly. For starters, the act of slaughter was not happening on the altar. And that was another thing that I just knew. I knew that you killed animals on the altar. This is the purpose of an altar. And yet when you look at Leviticus, it's actually very clear no animals are killed on the altar. We could talk about lots of arguments to shore up that claim, but it's clear that you either kill the animal in the courtyard before the altar, or you kill the animal to the north side of the altar, depending on what sacrifice is being offered. But then after you kill the animal, and this was typically half a line of one verse, he shall slaughter. That was it. After that, there were all these things that happened with the blood and with the flesh. And the focal point then was the altar or altars, because there's more than one in the tabernacle in the Pentateuch and in the temple in Jerusalem. So it, it suddenly, it suddenly occurred to me that there was a kind of, as you said, process that was involved the slaughter, but was not limited to just killing the animal, and that the process focused on bringing blood and flesh into God's presence by offering it to him at the altar. And that was really where the penny dropped for me, because suddenly it looked like Hebrews was actually working with the very same 
basic analogous idea of Jesus taking his own blood and flesh, his own body, into the presence of God and offering it to God in the heavenly tabernacle. And that that really was, for me, um, it, it sort of like, it was shocking. It blew my mind. It was an account of sacrifice that I had never been taught or heard before. But it, it, I thought, okay, I might be wrong, but I thought, I'm not making this up. <laughs> like, like Hebrews... Hebrews was teaching me to read Leviticus more carefully, and Hebrews was showing me that there were ways of thinking about sacrifice that resonated with Leviticus in ways that that some of my Christian theological tradition thought were confused and nonsensical. And I thought, well, this doesn't seem to be coming from my head. It really does seem like Hebrews and Leviticus are pressuring in these ways. So that again is yeah. is uh the way in which it forced me to rethink sacrifice and what's going on with sacrifice. Now that's so cool. Yeah, I, I remember being in the seminar with you at, at uh, St. Andrews and seeing this for the first time and it kind of blew my mind too and I was like, <laughs> man, there's a lot I have to rethink here, but when you start to see the picture uh, come together, I think it's very compelling. Um it certainly has changed the way that I that I read Hebrews. And I like what you said about Hebrews helping you also to read Leviticus better because a lot yeah. of the ideas or a lot, a lot of the ways that we've read, <clears throat> been trained to read Leviticus just really don't fit with, with the book. Like so many assumptions we have about what are, what are they doing when they're putting their hand on the animal? Well, there's nothing about transferring right. sin onto the animal, right. except, right. except of course, for the day of atonement where you right. send the animal away from God. Right? Yes. Um, right. Yeah. You know, and and just the idea of what even a, what a sacrifice is, right? How Leviticus right. identifies sacrifice as a gift to God, and so yeah, there's so many uh, facets to this. So you've got one chapter in the book that I think kind of brings out nicely what you did in, in your dissertation with tying together Day of Atonement stuff in Hebrews, and um, fits with kind of what you've been sharing already. So would you mind sharing with us just really briefly what is the significance? What is Hebrews doing with saying Jesus? brings his his body his blood into the heavenly tabernacle how does that fit with the day of atonement ritual that the author's using from Leviticus 16 yeah okay so i mean here's what i would argue um I mean, everybody everybody recognizes that the day of atonement is an important a Jewish ritual that the author of Hebrews is drawing on. But I think once we recognize the significance of the resurrection in the argument of Hebrews and the way in which that allows Jesus to take himself as a human being, he is always already the eternal son of God. But as a human being, as an incarnate human being, one of the things that resurrection names is the son's now and forever commitment to being a human being. And it allows him then to enter God's presence as a human being. And uh, as Hebrew says, to actually go into the heavenly holy of holies. Well, if you are a second temple Jewish person, as I presume the author of Hebrews is, someone who lived, you know, not long after Jesus died, rose and ascended, there's only one human being who is allowed to enter God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And that's the earthly high priest. And that individual can only enter God's presence one time a year. And that's on this special day called the Day of Atonement. For those who might not know, if you want to read about this, you can read about it primarily in Leviticus chapter 16, where we get this detailed, a relatively detailed account of the Day of Atonement. Now, what I argue 
at a couple of places in the book is that Hebrews is is working with an analogy. It's not a metaphorical theology that tries to show how the crucifixion does all the work. It's rather an analogy that's based on the view that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, passed through the heavens, and in passing through the heavens, then enters into God's heavenly presence. And the analogy is, well, there's another human being who is able to do that on earth, the high priest. So Jesus must be thought of as a high priest. And when the high priest goes into God's presence on earth, into the Holy of Holies, which is really kind of God's throne room in the tabernacle or then later in the temple. And Hebrews 9-7 actually says very clearly that when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he offers blood to God. And if you're then going to think about this as an analogy, and you use the Day of Atonement to help you understand what's going on with Jesus' ascension, then you have to say, well, what does Jesus offer? And in fact, the, the author actually asks this, raises this very point in 8, 1 through 4, that Jesus has gone into God's heavenly presence, and just like the high priests on earth have to have something to offer, so also Jesus has to have something to offer. He doesn't say it quite that clearly, but this is part of his point in 8, 1 through 4. And what does Jesus offer? Well, he offers his own blood and his own body. He offers himself to God as the sacrifice. So that's the way in which uh, I think Hebrews is drawing on the Day of Atonement uh, because he's Jewish and because this is for him a natural model to think about how God and, and at least his people in the Mosaic Covenant could come together and have sin in particular dealt with once a year. That becomes an analogy precisely because Jesus has now entered into the very space that these earthly realities are based upon. So in Exodus 25, for example, God tells Moses to make sure that he builds everything on earth according to the pattern that was shown him when he was on the mountain. Hebrews actually um, alludes, cites part of this verse in chapter 8 again. Uh, so the, the author is thinking about this, that if Moses was able to see these heavenly realities, well, then these heavenly rea realities, they must in some way already exist. And then when Moses ordains the priests, sets up the tabernacle, and then gives all these instructions that come from God about sacrifice, he's already doing something which is based on some kind of heavenly reality. So there's yet another way in which this analogy would just make very good sense to a Jewish person, uh, to many Jewish people at this period of time. If you were to ascend into God's presence in heaven, it would make sense for you to be ascending to the very place that Moses saw, thus the heavenly tabernacle, the very thing that Moses based the earthly one on. And to do this again, you probably need to be thought of as a priest of some kind who is offering some kind of sacrifice to God, just like uh, you see happening on earth. Th this is how yeah. I think Hebrews is drawing on the Day of Atonement to think about analogies between the earthly ritual and what Jesus did and is doing in heaven. That's really great. The way I've sometimes described it to students, I don't know how help helpful it is, but to think of the earthly as sort of like a portal that communes with the heavenly. And so, but, but it's based off of the, the pattern of yeah. the heavenly. When one observes what's happening in the earthly, whether textually or in, in some kind of reality, that, that can give a picture by analogy to what the kind of stuff that goes on 
uh, yes. in, the heavenly, in the heavenly space. And so what Hebrews is saying is Jesus is now entering into that heavenly space and offering himself as this sacrifice on a kind of, um, yeah, cosmic day of atonement, if you if you Absolutely. Like. Yeah, I, I think that is that's exactly what I think Hebrews is doing. And, and for Hebrews, this would be a natural relationship. This is why the analogy works and why it's not really a metaphor. He's not taking something that doesn't apply to the heavenly space namely sacrifice, and then saying, but yet somehow Jesus' death is like that and related to heavenly space. He's actually looking at something that he already thinks there are direct connections between. That is, a tabernacle in heaven and the tabernacle on earth uh, that's described in the Pentateuch. So for Hebrews, it, I think it's a perfectly natural set of ideas and relationships to, to play out. Yeah. And another thing that's so fascinating about it is what Hebrews does temporally for us. It places all of church history, if you will, yeah. in the in the Day of Atonement. Still, that's right. right. So that's right. At the yeah. end, at the end of chapter at the end of chapter nine, we're waiting for the high priest to leave the after having offered the sacrifice to leave the tent, and that's Hebrews lines that up with Jesus's return. And so, yeah, that would place us all still in the middle of the Day of Atonement, um, as it were. I, I, yeah, thanks, Max. I think that's exactly right. And uh, one of the individuals who I found wh who was arguing this centuries ago was actually Origen, um, who, who makes this very point. And, and he picks up on exactly these two elements, that you have Jesus ascending into God's presence in the heavenly tabernacle on the one hand, and then you have the people in 928, which you referenced but also this idea shows up again in 1035 through 39. There's this idea that we are waiting for Jesus to return. Well, if we're waiting for Jesus to return, then we as followers of Jesus can imagine ourselves to be in a situation that's not unlike the people waiting for the high priest on the Day of Atonement who has gone into the Holy of Holies to present, to offer blood, and presumably also to pray for or intercede for the people. They're waiting for him to return so that he can give them the priestly blessing and, you know, they can know like, all right, now his work is done. And Hebrews seems to locate Jesus right in that space. He's ascended into the heavenly tabernacle. He's doing his high priestly ministry right now. 725, because he always lives, he is, he is able to save his people completely, right? Precisely because he can intercede for them right now. And then in 928 and 1035 and following, his people are now waiting for him to return to them. And that's when, according to Hebrews, he will bring them uh, bring us our salvation. So yeah, it is a really interesting way to think about the ascended Jesus, who is in some sense absent from his people, but that absence is not a problem to be solved or something to worry about. It's exactly the thing that provides ongoing uh, forgiveness, which allows for this ongoing relationship, which may, it, it, it's the, the language that I use in the book is that this is a way that Jesus is maintaining the very new covenant relationship that he inaugurated. And conceptually, that's exactly where Jewish sacrifice and especially the Day of Atonement would sit as well. They were there to help maintain the covenant relationship between God and God's people. And similarly, that's what Jesus is doing, although better. He's doing it better, according to Hebrews, not least because he's not doing it in the earthly 
copy of the heavenly reality. He's actually entered the heavenly reality itself. And and sorry, just one more quick point on this front. You know, you, you have these ideas like Paul saying, now is the day of salvation that I think actually resonate in really interesting ways uh, with what's going on. It's not filled out. Paul doesn't explain how that actually works. But Hebrews seems to be explaining, giving us one way to think about a kind of mechanism, as it were, uh, for how that day of salvation actually works. Jesus is now the high priest and sacrifice in God's presence, interceding for his people. So now you can come to him and find salvation, find this, this relationship that will lead to inheriting ultimate salvation. Yeah, that's so cool. Uh, another plug for the book, right? There's David's got a great chapter in here looking at the ways in which some early patristic interpreters looked mm. at he looked at sacrifice in Hebrews. And what this came out of is actually some uh, initial pushback on David's published dissertation, award-winning book on this idea of atonement in Hebrews. And one of the questions raised, I think fairly a helpful question that pushed yeah. David by one of the reviewers was, well, where do we see this anywhere in early church interpretation, right? If it's so clear yeah. in Hebrews, why don't we see it anywhere? And so that's this right. Pushed, yeah. This pushed David into the sources and what he shows is it is there. <laughs> it's yeah. there in a yeah. number of uh, early church thinkers, in particular in Origins ninth homily on Leviticus is the, yeah. the number, the number one place to go. Um, yeah. It's funny, it's funny, David, because of your work on that too, that pushed me to read through Origins ninth homily on Leviticus. And, right. and so one thing that popped out to me was Origen takes up this Jesus Logion on the day that the bridegroom is taken up, then they will fast. Right. And he coordinates yeah. it with that. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, what is that Logion actually doing in the gospel? And, and anyway, right, so, right, right. so I've, re I've now just worked up an article. <laughs> I'm not sure how well it works. We'll see, we'll see how it's received, but arguing that that Logion in Mark actually is pointing to a sort of Yom Kippur typology. Oh, in fantastic. The, in, in the gospel. Um, and yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even started thinking along those lines until reading Origins homily. But what I realized there is actually there is a strand in early Christian interpretation of that logion that seems to line it up with the Day of Atonement, and um, I think it works pretty well for Mark if some of the other arguments I make work. So we'll see how. Oh it's well, yeah, I look forward to reading that, Max. Um, I mean that. Origin, I think, gets many things wrong. Um, and of course, the tradition has pointed out many of the things that he gets wrong. But it's important to say that Origin is not alone on these ideas about Jesus' heavenly sacrifice. Like some people will hear heavenly sacrifice and they'll think, wait, are you saying that Jesus is always suffering in heaven? Like, no, see, that's exactly the wrong way to think about sacrifice. Sacrifice is not about something being made to suffer. That's not sacrifice in a Jewish frame. The Levitical sacrifice is about giving a gift to God. And uh, in giving the gift, there are lots of things that can happen in the relationship if God chooses to accept the gift. But to then say that Jesus is now the sacrifice before the Father is not a way of saying that he's constantly suffering or constantly dying, precisely because, again, that's the wrong 
model for thinking about sacrifice. It's a way of saying he is always the gift which he, in his very person, he is the gift he offers to the Father. And there are rich and robust patristic uh, interpretations that draw heavily on Hebrews that precede origin, uh, but then lots of them that follow after origin. Um, and uh, I, 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 you're absolutely right. This, this was a criticism that um, I, Howard Marshall in particular, uh, raised about what I was arguing. And it's a very fair criticism. But, but what it helped me to do, as you said, is go back and actually say, now, let's just think a minute. Maybe many of us, and I count myself here, don't really know these patristic sources. But equally, maybe when we read these patristic sources, if we do, we tend to just use our same assumptions whenever we see them talking about sacrifice. But if we allow that there might be different assumptions in play, and sometimes I think they just don't fit the assumptions, um, like even before Origen, uh, Hippolytus is making an argument for the Trinity over against a kind of modalist view by arguing that the father never has flesh, but the son took on flesh and then ascended to the father to offer that flesh as a sacrifice to the father in his ascension. And it's precisely the fact that the son now is flesh in heaven that for Hippolytus becomes a proof that the father and the son have to be different persons because the father still doesn't have flesh. But now the son, because of the resurrection, has flesh which he offers to the Father as a sacrifice in his ascension. So it's a really brilliant argument that um, that actually kind of stands uh, foundationally in some incarnational and Christology and Trinitarian reflection uh, that depends on Jesus offering his flesh to the Father when he ascends. So these sorts of things just have, have seemed to have been missed or misread um, by many, but not all, not all modern thinkers. The, when you start looking for it, it, it pops up in various places. But really, you know, I, I guess our frame of reference tends to be the last maybe 50 to 70 years. And sure. and within that frame of reference, these ideas really had tended to be pushed off to the side in favor of spiritual metaphorical readings of uh, Hebrews ascension language and Hebrews sacrifice language as all being about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. Another thing you'll find in some of these patristic interpreters, I know for sure in origin, is they compare the the robes that the high priest has to put on to enter into the heaven, enter that's into right. the, sanct- the, ta- uh, the tabernacle as Jesus's resurrection flesh. That's so, right. Yeah. So, like when Hebrews talks about Jesus being made perfect. <laughs> being made perfect through the resurrection. This is the perfecting of humanity so that human flesh can actually be brought into divine space, which, you know, there's kind of this, this tension point, because how does, how does mortal corrupt humanity enter into divine space? Really like these things, there's a tension point here, right? That Leviticus is trying to negotiate. And what you find in some of these thinkers is like, well, actually the necessary robe, you know, Jesus has to put on is the resurrection flesh that he brings into the heavenly yep. space. Yeah, that's right. I mean, th- this this is sort of at the heart of my doctoral dissertation. This is one of the points that I argued. And it was really gratifying to then find uh, patristic arguments that they do it in some ways differently, probably in many ways much better. But nevertheless, they're making these very points that... Um, that it's exactly the Son of God putting on resurrected 
blood and flesh that he then takes into God's heavenly presence, which for them is compared or by analogy is compared to the linen garment that the high priest puts on on the day of atonement when he goes into God's uh, presence in the earthly holy of holies. So it's a lot of fun to, to find that. And, you know, I, for my part, this doesn't make my arguments right. Although, you know, I'm, I'm willing to stand behind them at, at the moment. I haven't seen really, I haven't seen criticisms yet that have made me think like, no, this is fundamentally incorrect. But when you do see other interpreters in the tradition who make the same assumption, namely that Jesus, that who is always already the eternal son of God, actually took on human flesh and blood, died and then rose from the dead with this now perfected human flesh and blood. When you see other interpreters in the tradition use that assumption and then read Hebrews, it's gratifying to see that the pressure of the text with that assumption pushes to, in, in at least some cases, very similar interpretations. So, yeah. That, yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun to do that work in, in patristic material and find this, yeah. um, not least because several, uh, several critics had, had made this point. Like it, this, what you're saying can't be right because no one's ever read Hebrews this way, um, except maybe Socinus or something, you know, but actually no, the, lots of, of, of patristic figures had been reading Hebrews in very similar ways, precisely because they assumed that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and that's really the, one of the primary assumptions that, not so much, I suppose, for evangelicals, but especially for sort of broader uh, modern New Testament interpretation, that's been one of the assumptions that many modern New Testament interpreters do not share with these patristic interpreters. Uh, so so they end up, I think, having to read Hebrews in very different ways. Well, it's, a, it's such a great article, and it's it's cool to see it in the book here now, kind of together yeah. with other articles. It's fun. Um, you've got another great piece in here, which I have used before in class with students. Cool to see it in the book. It's probably my favorite title of any of the chapters. The, the title is It Is Not Finished. Right, and yeah. I kind of... Uh, <laughs> A jab at John's to Telestai, maybe. Uh, yeah, so I'd love to hear kind of your thinking about what is the unfinished piece, like when yeah, you think about yeah. this, the sacrifice. Yeah, what is what isn't finished? And then I've got a question for you actually about about the cross and John because I, I I'd love to pick your brain on that a little bit. So what is the okay. it is not what is yeah. the it is not finished piece? Okay, fantastic. This is a great question. Obviously, the title of that chapter is intended to be polemical. I mean, I'm trying to get people's attention here. Um, yeah. Uh, which is not intended to be cheap. Um, I absolutely am willing to stand behind the argument that I offer there, but it is intended to get people's attention. And it's intended to especially point out that there is a tendency, maybe especially in evangelical interpretation, to assume that when Jesus says it is finished in John 19.30, that he's referring to everything we mean when we have an entire soteriology of especially kind of penal substitutionary atonement, that, that the gospel writer or, or that Jesus himself, according to the gospel of John, is saying exactly what we mean when we talk about atonement. And what I'm really trying to highlight here is that that's not very good exegetical practice, 
right? It, it, it's this is called proof texting, really, <laughs> where you you just assume that one verse means exactly all these ideas that you think about, and then you can use that verse to then prove that everything you think is right. Obviously, we all need to watch out for, about being careful about proof texting, but what I'm trying to point to in this article is that it's not actually appropriate to hang an entire account of the atonement in a systematic theological way on this word it in John 1930, right? Which is, uh, I mean, it's just a simple Greek verb. Uh, but, but we assume that when Jesus says it is finished, that the it means everything we think. And that is a mistake, or at least I think it's likely to be a mistake. What we need to do is try and think through the Gospel of John and try to, to understand what for John is going to be the primary thing that's going on in the crucifixion. And maybe perhaps with your subsequent question, we'll come back to that. Although I need to put the caveat out that John is not my wheelhouse. Um, I mean, I have thought about these these issues, but um, I'm perfectly willing to admit that I'm not nearly as much an expert on the Gospel of John as I don't know it as well as I know Hebrews, for example. Okay. Now, when we then come back and say, okay, it is not finished. What am I trying to get at there? I'm trying to say that when we think about this idea of sacrifice again, if we allow that sacrifice, as, as you mentioned, is a process, that it involves a whole sequence of events, of things that happen, but that the process has as its end goal um, bringing this gift uh, into God's presence, and that that is done primarily by a priest at the Jewish temple uh, and at the tabernacle before it, then the idea that Jesus is doing certain things when he dies that are important for salvation in no way forecloses or shuts down the possibility that Jesus has other important things that he has to do for our salvation that extend beyond the crucifixion. So if we use this model of sacrifice, then just thinking in terms of sacrifice in this way as a process, the slaughter of the animal and by analogy, the death of Jesus as a sacrifice is part of the sacrificial process, but it's not the sum total of the process. And in fact, it's not in sacrifice itself. It's not even the most important element of the process. Now, I need to pause here and just say, some people will hear me saying that therefore the cross is not important. That is not what I just said. I'm really only trying to think now about sacrifice. There are way more things going on in the death of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus than just the idea that he's a sacrifice. And, and this really kind of picks up on your your opening point that what I'm trying to argue, I don't view as being necessarily opposed to any one account or theory of the atonement. What I think I'm trying to argue is that if we allow that there's more going on in the death of Jesus, but also in the resurrection and also in the ascension and also in the ongoing intercession, then we have tended to think when we reduce everything just to the crucifixion. If there's more going on, then what it allows us to say is that one of the problems with these various theories of atonement is that they tend to be too reductive. Each theory 
claims to be the account, often, not always, but the account that explains the death of Jesus. What I'm suggesting is maybe each theory is picking up on something that is right, but the problem is we can't limit this or reduce it only to the death of Jesus, right? That's my little pressing pause. Now, now coming back to the idea that sacrifice is a process, if we then use the sacrificial model where a priest has to take after the animal is slaughtered, a priest has to take the blood and flesh to the altar, and then in some cases, actually, and especially on the Day of Atonement, take the blood even in to the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and then into the Holy of Holies in order for the sacrifice to be offered to God. Well, if that's right, then Jesus dying on the cross with that kind of model is not the sum total of his offering of a sacrifice. So that's what I'm arguing is not finished when he dies on the cross. His offering of himself to the Father is not finished when he dies. Why? Well, for starters, and this is a big part of John, but also other New Testament texts, when Jesus dies on the cross, we are, from a tr from a, an incarnational point of view, and indeed from a Trinitarian point of view, this is when the Son is sent away from the Father. Now, that's the opposite direction that a sacrifice travels. A sacrifice goes into the presence of God. It doesn't go away from God's presence. So when Jesus is dying, this is actually what he's doing as he is sent away. You get this language showing up in Galatians 4, when Paul says that the Son of God was sent away to be born. You get it showing up throughout the Gospel of John. You get it showing up in the Johannian epistles, right? So something else, I think, is going on with the death of Jesus than the sum total of his self-offering to God, not least because the Son is away from the Father. But when the Son actually returns to the Father, well, there he's tracing the very direction that a priest and a sacrifice travel when it's being offered to God. It goes into the presence of God. So what is not finished when Jesus dies is the ultimate self-offering of the Son to the Father, because the self-offering occurs when the Son rises from the dead and then ascends into the Father's presence and presents his offering to God. This, of course, is coming from Hebrews largely, although the idea, interestingly enough, is there in 1 John, especially in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So it's not even just limited to Hebrews. The idea that Jesus is the sacrifice who now advocates for us with the Father is there in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. But in Hebrews in particular, it's precisely this ongoing activity of Jesus interceding for us, Hebrews 7, 25, which makes the full salvation of his people possible. Okay? That work is not finished. It is ongoing. And one way that I think we can just sort of begin to get our minds around how this would work would be to ask a question that I, I don't often hear asked, actually. And that is this. What would happen to us in terms of our salvation if Jesus stopped interceding for us? Now, we, we should sit with that question for a bit, okay? Because Hebrews says that he is able to save his people completely because he always lives to intercede for them. Even Paul in Romans 8.34 says, who is there to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died, but even more, Rose is seated at the right hand of God 
interceding for us. Therefore, he says, in 35 through 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he died? Yes. But even more, rose and is now at God's right hand, interceding for us. Now, if Jesus stopped interceding for us, Paul would find that impossible. Hebrews would find that impossible. First John would find that impossible. But just as a thought experiment, if Jesus stopped his intercession for us, then in each of these cases, I think we have to conclude that we have no more confidence that nothing can separate us from God. We have no more confidence that our sins, if we confess our sins, are going to be forgiven. Our confidence, to, to go to the first John text, or to go back to Hebrews 7.25, we have no confidence that we will ultimately be saved. Our confidence rests on Jesus' ongoing intercession. It rests, in other words, precisely on him being the high priest who is before the Father interceding on our behalf. That is what I would argue is not finished. And the reason that that connects in, you know, I think is a nice way with with a certain reading of John 19.30 is because for many modern theologians, that is exactly what is finished. It's all done. Anything that has to do with sin and salvation is all done and complete in the past, which then raises really interesting questions and really puts us up against it when we ask, well, what if Jesus stopped interceding for us? We have to, on that old that other account, if it is all finished, we have to say nothing happens. Everything just continues. Jesus' intercession is just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. A metaphor for the cross? Like, it's not doing anything. So if he were to stop it, it doesn't, we don't lose anything. But that doesn't seem to align with these New Testament texts. These New Testament texts seem to actually be saying, no, the confidence that we have forgiveness, that we have salvation, that we can enter, as Hebrews says, the presence of, of God now boldly is directly related to the fact that Jesus is now interceding for us. And that has got to mean that work that uh, is for our salvation otherwise in certain respects known as atonement, right? Mm -hmm. That that sort of activity, or at least elements of that activity, continue to be ongoing so long as Jesus is before the Father interceding on our behalf. That's really great. And I think why that is difficult for us sometimes to grasp is that we put so much emphasis on loading everything into this term justification, which is the beginning, yeah. kind of the beginning thing. So when we think of the term saved, I mean, even in popular evangelicalism, when we use the term saved, people say, I got saved, right? Yeah. That's a very common term. So everything's put on that front kind of part of the process. We don't think about Actually, for the, from the New Testament's perspective, the, the, the final part of the process of being saved is when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. That's and, right. And that, that's kind of something we don't spend a lot of time thinking about for a variety of reasons as Protestants. Yeah, that's um, right. But, but you're, you're right. It's like from that initial point of coming into being part of the people of God to the moment Jesus returns, what's happening there, right? He's interceding for his people. And if that intercession isn't taking place, you don't get final salvation, which is the ultimate thing to which it's all headed. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, th I think it's important just to point out, too, that, I mean, there's not a hint of what in theological terms is called Pelagianism here. There's not a hint of it. it the work is being done by Jesus. Right. It's all about 
Jesus. And, and in fact, one of the things that I would want to argue is precisely that it's not all about the cross. The cross is hugely important. Without the cross, there is no salvation. And in particular, concepts like redemption, uh, the defeat of the devil, freedom from slavery, a kind of entering into a new covenant relationship, all these sort of, as we might say, initiating sorts of things are very much uh, focused around the crucifixion. But when it comes to these things that um, the language I would want to, that I've used in the book is these maintaining ideas, these things that keep the relationship healthy, as it were. These things, the, the focal point here becomes the ascended Jesus, precisely in his acts of interceding on our behalf. And that way, again, it's, I mean, I guess traditionally we might want to put the language of sanctification here. And even the idea that the Spirit is being poured out, I think, is directly linked. I mean, in Acts, right? Here's another thought experiment. If all the work of salvation was done the minute Jesus died, why isn't the Spirit poured out exactly then? It's not until after Jesus ascends into heaven that the Spirit is poured out. And I think that's because even in Acts, as I argue in one of the chapters in the book, um, even in Acts, underlying how this New Testament author is thinking is a notion of that, that I think aligns well with Jewish sacrificial ideas, that it's precisely in Jesus going to the Father and being at the Father's right hand. Uh, something I know from Psalm 110 and, you know, the, the, the question of David's son, um, all these are points I know that are interesting to you. But, um, yeah. but from my perspective, this idea of Jesus going to the Father, I think is even in Acts, there's an assumption that Jesus' return to the Father actually does something. This assumption pops up in Acts 5.31 where Peter says when he's in, in one of his, the imprisonments that this Jesus uh, who you crucified, God raised up and made both Lord and forerunner and exalted him to his right hand. There's that Psalm 110 idea. In order to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Now, again, right there, it, it's not that the cross doesn't matter. Of course, the cross is massively important. But equally important is the idea that God exalted Jesus to his right hand. And it's exactly in Acts 5.31, the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand that is for the purpose of giving forgiveness of sins to the people. Acts doesn't say that's Jewish sacrifice. But if we try to think about the logic of how that could be working, it aligns really well with the kind of argument based on analogy with Jewish sacrifice that we see in the book of Hebrews. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one one point on John too that I think might be helpful. And I, I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. So as I think about the gospels and the way that the crucifixion is presented in the four, four gospels, what you have in the synoptic tradition. So the synoptic tradition <laughs> Uh, of course, and in the words of institution, you get the inauguration of the new covenant, uh, the outpouring yeah. of blood, uh, outpouring yeah. of blood. Yeah. But the, the synoptic tradition doesn't bring <clears throat> any sacrificial imagery into the depiction of the crucifixion. Like there's there's none there. But in the Johannine tradition, you do have sacrificial imagery brought into the crucifixion. But what you also have in John, more so than in the synoptic tradition, 
is an overlaying of resurrection, glory, and crucifixion together. So when when John says, John uses this uh, double entendre from the lifting up of the servant figure, when the Mm -hmm. servant is lifted up and glorified, and John basically uh, has the cross as a picture of also simultaneously and paradoxically a picture of Jesus's resurrection glory. And so I wonder if part of the reason why we have more explicit sacrificial imagery in John, the outpouring of water and blood, this kind of purification language going on, if part of the reason why that's more explicit in John is because John is allowing us to have a, a resurrection glory lens overlaid hmm. on the crucifixion in a more explicit way than we see in the, in the synoptic tradition. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Um, and intuitively it strikes me as the kind of thing that's, that's worthy of a lot more hard thinking. I, I'm certainly not opposed to the idea that the gospels, which are not the book of Hebrews, right. <laughs> Could be doing things and saying things that are going to be different than the way that Hebrews is presenting them. But, you know, insofar as there are sacrificial ideas at all in play, I even in, in John's gospel, um, and you can certainly push back on me on this point, it seems like the primary place that, that this gets located is with the Passover idea. And I guess I've wondered if the it is finished is really more about the liberation of God's people, some sort of activity of redemption indeed some sort of defeat of the devil um which you know defeat of darkness light uh, uh not being able to overcome darkness not being able to overcome the light but having said that um i'm intrigued by what you're you're suggesting because i, I do think that obviously the gospels are written after jesus death resurrection and ascension so at any given point in the Gospels, uh, the synoptics, and especially in John, uh, there's always the possibility that later confession and ideas about Jesus are, are being shown to resonate with things that happened in the life of Jesus. So I, I don't view that in as in any way um, problematic for this, this larger approach. And I suspect you're right. I mean, John does more of that sort of reading in of the heavenly son and the, and the glory of the son uh, in the account of Jesus' life than the synoptics tend to do. You do get it with the transfiguration. But I still think even in John, there's still the, there's still this um is it uh John 16 uh what is it 8 or or 9 where he says that uh he cannot send the paraclete the spirit unless he goes away mm-hmm. that it's only if Jesus Jesus says unless i go away uh, i cannot send the encourager so even in John there's an idea that Jesus has to ascend uh, has to, as he says, go to my father's house, right? Uh, which is temple language. Mm-hmm. I mean, God's house is the temple. This is not some sort of like set of mansions, you know, like real estate in the sky. This is language to talk about Jesus going to the heavenly temple. Um, and but, this but is presumably. Dave- it's a big, big house with lots and lots yeah. of rooms. Right, like, right, right. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the temple had lots of rooms in it, and presumably <laughs> the heavenly temple is you know, far superior to that. Um, but yeah, there's still, even in John, um, uh, together with what you're suggesting potentially, there's still this idea that the death of Jesus, you need more than just the death of Jesus. You also need Jesus to ascend 
to return to his father. And that return is linked by Jesus himself with the ability to give the spirit to his followers. So there, there's still ways I w in which I think John, whatever he's doing, uh, still kind of ticks with this basic um, sequence, this basic narrative about the incarnate son um, as being sent to do certain work on earth so that he can then ultimately return and do certain work with the father, right? I mean, even in, in I go to prepare a place for you, he's doing something. He, he's not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs, waiting right. for all of this to wrap up. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. I, I just wanted to run it by you because it's, um, I've, I, I've started to suspect that maybe the cross scene in John is mm. a kind of drawn together of the full of, in some ways, retrospectively the full effects of that process and kind of yeah, depicting yeah. it in the cross in some ways um not yeah. not, to not to suggest <clears throat> that it's finished in the in the cross but right right kind right. of kind of like the cross is like the first like if you're kind of looking down a tunnel right of a whole of the yeah. whole process and you see the cross at first but you're supposed to see the whole process in the like in the tunnel as kind of as you gaze of, at, at the cross i don't know yeah you know, it's really interesting, Max, because, um, I mean, one of the things that this work in Hebrews has done, like, I, I'm a low church Baptist. Um, I, I'm not ashamed to admit or confess that fact. Um, that's my tradition. And I think there's real value in certain kinds of ways in that particular tradition. Um, but one of the things that the work that I've done in Hebrews has really pushed me to think differently about is Eucharist. And I guess what I'm suspecting is that if what you're hitting on, I wonder, I, this is totally off the cuff, if there isn't actually for John something Eucharistic already going on there. Because in Eucharist, um, and we see this, actually there are certain patristic interpretations of Eucharist, which are are really, they, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim his death until he comes. Now, like the tradition I grew up in was we proclaim his death until yes. he comes, right? Yes, right? yes, yes. But, but actually, until he comes is, I think, as important as proclaiming his death. And the thing is, from proclaiming his death until he comes, there's an entire story. There's an entire narrative about Jesus that sits within these two brackets. To go back to what we were talking about earlier, that story in Hebrews is about Jesus entering the presence of the Father and presenting himself as an offering and then sitting at God's right hand and now interceding for us as a great high priest, right? Romans 8.34, Jesus died, yes, but rose, is seated at God's right hand, now interceding for us, fits right mm -hmm. in that those two brackets of proclaiming his death until he comes. So, uh, yes, proclaiming his death is absolutely essential. Uh, and uh, honestly, I know some people have tried to try to suggest that my arguments diminish somehow uh, the crucifixion or diminish Jesus' death. I, I, I can't understand that criticism, honestly. Um, it, it seems to me to be a criticism that's basically saying that for that person, the person making that criticism, the only category they have is the cross. So if you then come along with an argument that says, yes, the cross, but more – if that's diminishing the cross, well, I just think you're missing the but more. Romans 8.34 has – Paul has way more than just the crucifixion, okay? And I think then to come back to this Eucharist point that Paul can 
focus on these two brackets and I think assume, as he spells out in, say, Romans 8.34, that there's way more going on here. Maybe, maybe John is doing something similar to that, that there's a way of thinking about the death of Jesus, but then looking beyond the death of Jesus and seeing that there's way more that's going on here. And perhaps this is related to the way in which Eucharist brings together Passover and the Day of Atonement, which are two two. Two festivals, um, you know, I realize the Day of Atonement is not usually thought of as a happy festival, but it's one of the great feasts uh, in Jewish uh, tradition that you fast on. <laughs> These are two very different things. And a Second Temple Jew is not likely to confuse or conflate these two different things. I mean, imagine an American uh, saying today that the 4th of July is the same as Christmas, like, we, we just wouldn't confuse these things. We know that they're very different things. They happen at different times of the year, and they focus on different parts of a certain kind of American identity. 2,000 years from now, someone might not as clearly see the distinction between the 4th of July and Christmas. And you might make arguments that, well, Christmas is all about your right as an individual American to go out and buy and, and get stuff and fulfill your own identity and whatever. And that's basically what the 4th of July is about, right? But we, we just would never make that confusion. I presume that Second Temple Jews could, could see clear distinctions between what they celebrate at Passover and what they reflect on on the Day of Atonement. And yet, when it comes to the person of Jesus, who we reflect on at Eucharist, this is a the incarnation. Jesus, who died, rose, ascended, and is now seated at God's right hand interceding for us, Eucharist kind of brings that all together. We proclaim his death until he comes. That it brings it all together in a way that allows for us to think about Passover in, in a way as we're thinking about Jesus now before the Father interceding for us. And I don't know. I just wonder, maybe, maybe what you're seeing in John is, is thinking somehow already in a way that would resonate really well with that sense of more going on when we celebrate Eucharist than just the death, right? I mean, if it's only the death, why are we even celebrating, right? Uh, the celebration is is precisely based on the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. So anyhow, yeah, I, I'm, I love it. Love it. Yeah, as a low exactly. church Baptist, I'm talking way outside of my <laughs> area of, of expertise, but, but I do, I have begun to wonder about that. And there do seem to be, I touch on this in the article on some of these patristic interpretations. There do seem to be interpretations of Eucharist that are already thinking in exactly these kinds of more robust ways about the whole creedal story of the incarnation, that the Son of God was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will return. Eucharist seems to be connected with that whole story, not just one part of that story. Yeah, I agree. And it's fascinating. So many patristic interpreters are, uh, and you have this very early on, like, early second century texts even clearly making this point they're aligning the jesus story with the two goats of the day of atonement yeah um, so right. him, him taking on corrupt human flesh and dying is aligned with the sent the goat that's sent away we often call the sent away goat. that's right sent and, away from god 
Right. And then the, the sacrificial goat for the Lord is his, or his resurrection. And even they yes. even line that up with his return, even because he's still that sacrificial offering that's with, yeah. with the Lord. So yeah, very interesting, man. There's yeah. so, there's so much more. I wanted, I wanted to talk about what you do with the suffering servant and penal substitution and all these things, but we're running up against the clock and I, I don't know how much time you yeah. have, but I definitely want it before we end. One thing I want to hear from you about a little bit, if we could, is some of this stuff might sound a little bit academic, I suppose, to some of my listeners, um, a variety of different listeners. Many of them are very interested in biblical studies. That's why they yeah, they yeah. tune in. But many are um, pastors, chaplains, people training yeah. for, for ministry. And so I think one question they might be asking themselves now is, man, this stuff is really fascinating. I'm thinking about atonement in new ways. How, though, am I going to take any of this and communicate it in a church context? And what difference would that make? So not for maybe just academic theology, but what difference does this make in a pastoral context when we talk about atonement, salvation in the mm. church? What would be some yeah. things that you might say? Um yeah, well, I, I'd want there. There's a lot I think I'd want to say. Let, let's start with one of the big ones. Let's actually make Easter about the resurrection. I know that, that might sound kind of self-evident, but um, actually, I've I've sat through a number of Easter Sunday services where it was really just a reprisal of Good Friday. It, we were just still thinking about what Jesus did on the cross. In fact. A friend of mine sent me uh, a slide of a song that they sang on Easter Sunday at his church. And uh, I think it was actually a version of the Stuart Townend song. How, how, what, what's the song? How great, how deep how the great. love of the father. Yeah. Uh, I'm blanking on the exact title. Yes. How um, deep the father's love for us. How deep the father's love for us. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Now in, in that song, there's this, this line that, um, I will not boast in anything, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Okay. Which I, I great. Yeah. Exactly. It's not just the death. It's also the, I would, I would even add and ascension, but you know, whatever. But at this one church, my friend took a picture of the slide. They changed the words so that it said, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death for my atonement. And that's what they sang on Easter. And like, you know, now there's way more going on in an Easter service than just one song. I get that. But there is this tendency to really not think about the resurrection in robust terms, uh, on its own terms. Um, and so I would say it for starters, let's really let Easter be Easter. Let's really celebrate and focus on the resurrection. It's not just about vindicating Jesus. It is that, but it's about so much more. It opens up this way of thinking about restoration, reconciliation, shall we say atonement, between God and humanity, not least because it enables the Son to take humanity into God's presence. So that also means then that we should start thinking more seriously about the ascension, which the tradition I grew up in didn't really think about the ascension much at all. I literally remember as a kid sitting in a sermon that was talking about the ascension and having this image of Jesus just sitting, twiddling his thumbs, you know, not with nothing to do, just waiting around until he could come back. Like, that's not a robust account of the ascension. Okay, so... That, those are some things that I would say. We need to, to start thinking more about the resurrection and more about the ascension. And then in addition to that, I would say 
this becomes about the whole gospel, not just reducing the gospel to the death of Jesus. That is a that is absolutely essential for salvation. But equally essential is the resurrection and the ascension and the ongoing intercession. And when it comes to this idea of Jesus now interceding for us, I mean, I have actually heard some parishioners ask the question based on 1 John 1, 7 uh, and following that we should confess our sins for he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? Basically ask, like, why do I need to confess my sin? Now, the reason they're asking that question is because they're thinking that all that matters is the crucifixion and everything was taken care of. So what's the point of confessing sin? And I guess maybe the best that we can come up with is that it's it's about us. It's good for me as a person to confess my sin that somehow it helps me. I'm not saying that's wrong, but you know, we can go back to a text like 1 John 1 7 through 2 2 and see that actually there's way more going on here. That actually this is deeply relational. And this is something that I think as evangelicals we, we should warm to that in fact the relationship that we have with Jesus is not just about being included in his death. It's it's also about going to him, speaking with him in prayer, and knowing that he is going to intercede before his father, and that our forgiveness in, in the now is linked with him acting on our behalf now. Maybe one final point, and that is, I found that as, as I've tried to think about how this influences or changes just how I'm approaching even worship. I've suddenly found myself really thinking more about when we come to worship, we're joining with Jesus and what he's doing before the Father right now. And it's it's just given me personally a very different sense of entering into, I mean, this again, like Hebrews 12 talks about coming to this to Mount Zion and joining with myriads of angels and those righteous spirits, those who have gone on before us, presumably those from Hebrews 11, who have already died, who are somehow now in God's presence, um, and joining with Jesus himself in this act of worship. Images from Revelation suddenly become much more prominent. So rather than thinking about, again, I I've seen this on kind of Easter Sunday where somebody, it's a picture of, of someone bowing before an empty cross. And, um, okay, there are reasons why that's a powerful image. I, I understand that. But, but if we really stop and think about that image, that's not the right focal point. <laughs> we don't bow before the cross. We bow before the one who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, and who is now interceding for us and will return. It's it's Jesus who we worship. We don't worship the cross. So there are ways in which I think this can, I, I would hope, give us much more robust uh, um, theological ways of thinking about what worship is, uh, in addition to thinking about broader ideas about the gospel and broader ideas about salvation, uh, where salvation is not just about saving my spirit or, you know, forgiving my sin. It's also about raising us from the dead, about renewing creation. These sorts of ideas are, are much bigger. And I think um, 
thinking about death, resurrection, and ascension are helpful ways for us to see that bigger picture. Well, that's really helpful. Really great conversation, uh, David. Thank you so much for your work here in this book and just your scholarship in general. I, I bet benefited so much from from you knowing you and getting to engage with you personally and getting to engage with your work. So the book, everyone, it's Rethinking Atonement. And uh, I really highly encourage you to to get a copy. You'll you'll really enjoy it. It'll give you a hundred different things to think about um, and think freshly about. Um, and so, yeah, thanks again, David, just for, for being here yeah. for your work. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. It's just, It's been just a delight to to have this conversation. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Thank you.